Eagles Entertainment. The journey to the draft is driven by AAA. AAA roadside is their strong side. Make AAA a part of your game day today. AAA, go ahead. With the 25th pick in the NFL draft, the Philadelphia Eagles select. You're listening to the Journey to the Draft podcast, driven by AAA. Welcome to the Journey to the Draft podcast, presented by AAA. I'm your host, Fran Duffy, and we've got another fun one today with three really fun segments. And it all starts at the very top with pick six, where we're going to welcome in Greg Cosell, and we are talking wide receiver today. Six guys at the most talked about position outside of quarterback in this draft. How does Greg see Jamar Chase and Devontae Smith and Jalen Waddle? We'll hit on those three and three others right at the top of the show with pick six. After that, Ben Fennell and I are going to go through some draft buzz. We've got another mock draft to talk through, and this time it comes from Pro Football Focus. It came out earlier this week. It features a huge trade that our Eagles crowd here will be interested to hear us break down, but we're going to talk about a bunch of other teams as well, a bunch of other selections. Uh, they, we, we will say that in intrigued us in this mock draft. That's all in our draft buzz segment. Then I was pleased to welcome in for this week's unofficial visit, Ohio State defensive tackle Tommy Togiai, one of the better interior linemen in this draft. We'll talk about his career and what he's going to bring to his future NFL team. We really fun chat uh, earlier this week with Tommy Togiai. And then we'll wrap things up with draft mailbag. I'll get to one of your questions from home, a really fun discussion to wrap up the show. Before we get things started, I wanted to remind you once again about jumping onto our Apple podcast page. Leave us a comment. Leave us a rating. I know a lot of you guys have questions. We're trying to do all these different exercises exercises to replicate what NFL teams are going through and having all these discussions. If you've got questions about a mock draft or about player rankings or a specific prospect, whatever it is, go on to Apple Podcasts, leave us a review, leave us a rating, and we will hit on it here on the show. That being said, let's get this episode rolling. Now let's start things off with Pick 6. Now it's time for Pick 6. Well, I'm excited to welcome back here this week for Pick 6, my friend Greg Cosell. And Greg, we are going to talk about some wide receivers today, a position that is always chock full of talent in every year's NFL draft. And uh, this year is no different. No, and uh, if I'm not mistaken, Fran, I believe that receiver, wide receiver, and cornerback are the two positions that uh, have the most players selected in pretty much every NFL draft. No and question. we know that a lot of receivers play in the NFL. Now, obviously, we're not going to talk about guys who are, you know, potential sixth-round picks or free agents, but a lot of receivers play in the league. So to answer that question, because I that is something I keep track of, uh, and over the last 10 years, wide receiver absolutely leads uh, in terms of the average amount of players that are drafted every single season, 31.6 over a 10-year span, 32 over a five-year span. So that number is actually uh, climbing a little bit if you look at the five-year sample. But uh, I think when you look at wide receiver, you look at corner, uh, those are the two positions for sure that are drafted uh, with the highest volume. And so with that in mind, last week, uh, we actually kind of dove in just a couple different positions. We dabbled here and there. This week, I want to just pick, let's just pick six receivers. And, okay. uh, you know, and the way that I kind of want to look at this is at the top of this draft, there's a big debate between the two big, you know, the two number one, you know, the two names and Jamar Chase and Devontae Smith. And a lot of people would throw Jalen Waddell in there as well, the Smith's teammate from Alabama. So I just kind of want to break those three down and we'll just kind of talk about uh, their strengths, their weaknesses, and how they compare to each other. And we'll start uh, with Jamar Chase, a guy that we have not seen for a full year. He played uh, during LSU's national title uh, campaign back in 2019. He was outstanding. We we're like, man, it's it's going to be tough to replicate that. And of course, Devontae Smith went and did that <laughs> this past year uh, for Alabama. But take us through your notes from when you studied Jamar Chase. I know you did him over the summer. 
Yeah, I love Jamar Chase. And, and I, I, you know, I've done this for a long time. And you know me, friend. I rarely say I love someone who's not played in the NFL. But I really liked his game. Um, I think he has high-level traits tr- transition to the league. He's got size. He's got play strength. He's got hands. He's got body control. He's got balance. He's got burst and acceleration. He's got run after catch. He's physically tough. He's mentally tough. I kind of looked at him as somewhat of a special talent at the wide receiver position. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we always try to think of comparisons. If if one jumps out, uh, I know you do the same. Yep. You don't sit around for 20 minutes and say, who does this guy remind me of? If something jumps out, it jumps out. And I remember over the summer watching Chase and thinking there was some Steve Smith in his game. There was some DeAndre Hopkins in his game. Yep. He's got that type A personality that big time receivers must play with. And, and I really liked his game. Now it's interesting because as physically tough as he is, I thought at times he didn't do a great job versus press, but he was so physically tough that he kind of worked through it. Um, But beyond that, I did not really see any significant weaknesses in his game that would minimize a successful transition to the NFL. That was my feeling watching him over the summer. Yeah, I mean, I I watched him over the summer as well and came away just really, really impressed with the with the total package of what he brings. And I, I feel the same way. I didn't see any big flaws in his game. And I did write down DeAndre Hopkins as a name that he kind of reminded me of. I actually wrote down Larry Fitzgerald as well. Fitzgerald came in a slightly different package. He was, uh, I think, an inch and a half or so taller, and uh, you know, he was uh, you know probably like ten pounds bigger. But in terms of like the play style and the way that he wins yep. and the way that he's able to kind of do it from uh, outside the numbers at in that package he kind of reminded me a little bit of a Larry Fitzgerald and I feel like when you look at Chase his ability to win at that size uh especially at all three levels really really impressive you know and you make an interesting point because people now think of Fitzgerald as what he's been over the last two three years not what he was for the first nine or ten years of his right. career and I remember interviewing Ike Taylor they're the really great corner for the Steelers for years and the, one of the first things that Ike Taylor told me when I asked him about Larry Fitzgerald, he said he's much faster. And this goes back years, obviously. He said he's much faster than you think. Now, obviously, people who just think of Larry in the last couple of years think, oh, that's crazy. But, you know, Larry could move pretty good. And and Chase is one of those guys. He's not, you know, obviously, there's no combine this year. He, he was not going to be a 4-3-8 guy, but he can get he got on top of corners um, and he sort of had a. Uh, an effortless second gear to accelerate and separate on vertical routes. He, I just think he's a really, really good prospect. I want to share a quote with you. Uh, you mentioned the combine last year at the combine. One of the things I love doing, and I love doing this every year and I'm going to miss doing it this year is when I'll go around to all the players as they're speaking, I'll sneak in a question or two and I'll bounce over to the next guy. And one of the questions I asked a lot of players last year, who was the toughest guy you saw? Not the best player, most talented or fastest. Who was the toughest player? And a handful of guys brought up Jamar Chase. But I got a great quote from Noah Igbenogany, who ended up being a first-round pick of the Miami Dolphins. He was an all-SEC player for Auburn last year. Yeah. And Igbenogany told me, he said, yeah, it was Jamar Chase. And this, and this is the quote. He said, Chase is a different kind of receiver. He's not really a twitchy type like a Van Jefferson or a Devontae Smith. He's very physical. I didn't think he was going to be that big. But Jamar reminds me a lot of DeAndre Hopkins. So a lot of what he does in the league, 
is physical. A lot of his plays, he just comes off the line and tries to just run right through you and yeah. lose his physicality as well. A lot of receivers don't do that nowadays. A lot of receivers just try to go around you or run past you, but he was physical just like I was trying to be physical with him. So I had to kind of switch my game up to play a, a guy like Jamar Chase. I thought that was a great quote that kind of encapsulated what you were saying about him a few minutes ago. Oh yeah. I mean, I made the point about a type A personality that jumped off the tape to me. Yep, yep. You know, he just, he's, he's one of those guys. And I think that that really plays. So, uh, uh, I, I, as I said, you know, I really like Jamar Chase. I think to me, he's the best receiver prospect in the draft. All right. Well, let's get to a guy that some people will argue uh, is the best receiver in the draft, and that would be the other name here, and then Devontae Smith from Alabama. And obviously, he's got uh, plenty of hardware uh, to speak to that from this past season with what he did uh, for the Alabama Crimson Tide. Much different package. It's six one, a reported one seventy five. We don't know what that weight is. That's the big question mark. But uh, interested to kind of get your thoughts on, on Devontae Smith and what the film shows you from this past season and from years past at, at Alabama. Well. You know, to me, and again, um, I actually got his numbers from, I guess, last summer yep. when scouts went down to Alabama. You know, I spoke to a, a scouting friend of mine, and at, he was six feet and a quarter and 174, and that was over last summer. Um, he's a long, thin, silky smooth, linear strider. He has a vertical dimension with his ability to eat up ground and get on top of corners. Um, you know, I think he's a strider. When he can work freely into his routes, he can threaten defenders with his stride. You know, I think that he's he's deceptively sudden and explosive. He's, again, not a 4-3-8 kind of guy, but he's a very, very easy accelerator. We He has tracking ability, body control, really good hands. He can make contested catches at his size. Um, I think he's got a feel for how to set up corners. He's got a sense of refinement to his game. I would just be concerned, and I maybe this is cliched in the minds of some, but I would be concerned about the 174. Um, the 174 pounds is really, really light, and I think that's a legitimate question. Now, the, the great thing which you and I do is we watch full games, and there were n- numerous snaps where he lined up at boundary X, which I don't believe he is in the NFL, where he was physically pushed and squeezed to the sideline. And this showed up both in his 2019 and 2020 tape. I see him more as a movement Z or a slot in the NFL. Yeah. Uh, to me, I think if you look at uh, a kind of scheme that he were to go to where they were able to kind of protect him off the line, I could, I remember a quote, um, you know, when you look at uh, Cooper Cup, and I'm not comparing Devontae Smith to Cooper Cup, but Cooper Cup, the big question with him is, hey, can he get off a jam? Can he get off a jam? Right. He, can't, he couldn't do it at Eastern Washington. Can he get off a jam? He couldn't do it at the Senior Bowl. Well, then he goes to the Rams, and guess what they never asked him to do? They never asked him to beat a jam early in his career. And you get him out, that's the second level. And I feel like, if hey, if you can do that with Devontae Smith, get him the ball in space, get him up free access, that kind of a rate mitigates that. So it, it, the beauty is going to be in the eye of the beholder there, I think, in terms of teams that are saying, look, we're not going to ask him to be that guy. So maybe we're not as worried about that, but it's going to be a team-to-team well, thing, right? It's funny you say that because here's what I typed in, in my transition. My sense is Smith transitions most effectively as a movement Z and slot at his best with free access off the line to open his stride and maximize both his vertical traits and his run after catch traits. Yep. So I think we see that the same way. 
Yeah, I think he's a, a certainly a really interesting case study moving forward because of that frame, because of that size. Uh, with the production that he was able to put up at Alabama, a lot of people say, oh, he's slam dunk. You're definitely, definitely going to uh, you know, have that level of success. It's going to be hard to replicate that regardless, no matter how you're built. But uh, at that size, it'll be a very interesting case study uh, nonetheless. So uh, let's get to his teammate here in Jalen Waddell, one of the most explosive players, regardless of position in this draft. Uh, what has the film showed you with Jalen Waddell? I really like Jalen Waddell. I can easily make an argument that I feel more comfortable with Jalen Waddell's transition than Devonta Smith's transition. Um, I think Waddell is very, very similar to Tyree Kill in terms of athletic and explosive traits and how he can deploy, be deployed in the context of an NFL offense, which that's the goal here. The goal, we're talking about this to transition and project players to the NFL. Um, he's got both an explosive vertical dimension. He's got outstanding run after catch on short and intermediate receptions. Um, I guess the question is how teams will see him from a snap count standpoint and an alignment location standpoint. You know, it, can he be a high volume target? Tyreek Hill is essentially a pretty high volume target for the Chiefs. Um, you know, I think of someone like T.Y. Hilton. You know, T.Y. Hilton from 2014 to 2018. Uh, was a high-volume target and, in fact, led the NFL in receiving yards in 2016. And Hilton lined up all over the formation and dictated specific matchups used in motion. Um, I think Waddle can be that guy. I, I really liked Waddle's tape. I, I think that he's a, you know, a fascinating guy as you transition him to the league. I think it's interesting too because we saw last year, uh, you know, the the big three in terms of how that was viewed with Jerry Judy, C.D. Lamb, and with Henry Ruggs. A lot of people were surprised that Henry Ruggs was the first to go off the board. He ends up going number twelve, and I look at Waddle. I think Waddle's faster. I think Waddle's got a little bit more, uh, a little bit more lateral juice to go along uh, with that linear explosiveness that that uh, that Henry Ruggs brings. And I, I look at Waddle, and he uh, he is so dynamic yep. in every shape and every shape and form. Uh, he's going to be a fun player uh, oh. to watch in the NFL. I mean, he's a multi-dimensional receiver slash weapon yep. who can line up in multiple locations and create explosive plays at all three levels, Fran. I mean, you're going to see the jet sweeps, the orbit reverses, the screen game. You're going to see him used in, in multiple ways. To me, he doesn't theoretically have a weakness because you know what he is. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you want to say, well, he's not big. Well, of course he's not big. We know that. That's not a weakness. Um, but uh, he's he's as explosive both laterally and vertically as, as any receiver. And you know, I think he's he's a really good prospect in, t in the context of today's NFL. All right, well, let's get to uh, a fourth receiver here. And this is a guy that I was extremely high on coming into the year. He initially opted out once the Big Ten was kind of waffling whether they were going to play or not. He opted back in, and the season wasn't great for him. It wasn't really great for that entire team, for the Minnesota Gophers. I'm talking about Rashad Bateman. Interesting to kind of get your thoughts on Bateman and how you feel he will best transition to the league. Yeah, he's... Uh... He's a fascinating guy. I watched him over last summer and, and loved him. I loved um, his film last year. Loved his film. Now, again, he didn't lose his trades. Of course. You know, yeah. obviously their their team wasn't as good. He, I guess he he did he he did end up opting out after a number of games, right? Yeah, he, I don't think he played the full season. No, no he, I think he played six games. Um, but, I mean, to me, he has the look and feel of an NFL wide receiver. He's got size, stride length, route running and separation quickness. He's got hands. He's got run after catch. Um, 
you know, obviously people get stuck on the route tree. He he ran a fairly limited one in Minnesota due to the conceptual construct of their passing game. But he can, to me, he can run anything you want. Um, I don't think he's a true burner, Fran, but I think his stride length and route running savvy give him some of a some kind of a vertical element. I think you can line him up both outside and in the slot. I liked him. I mean, I, there were times that I watched him with his size, smooth movement, route running, competitiveness, that he reminded me of Michael Thomas coming out of Ohio State. Interesting, yep. Um, so I, I like Bateman a lot. You know, I, I, I think he's going to be a really good pro. To me, he just looks like an NFL receiver. I wrote down another Big Ten, a former Big Ten receiver. Uh, I wrote down Allen Robinson when I was watching him. Uh, what, what do you think of that in terms of just that's, his size and his technique, you know, just his refinement? Yeah. I mean, uh, he really, really impressed me. That's not a bad comparison either. I mean, you know, guys who are more smooth and fluid than sudden and explosive, but but there's a real smoothness to them. Um, you know, you, and all those guys, particularly Robinson and Bateman and even Thomas to a large extent, you wouldn't consider those guys elite athletes for the position, but I don't see that as a weakness. Mm. You know, they're, they're, they're really good receivers and they've got size. Yeah. And we, we see time and time again. I mean, we just, we brought up two of them just there uh, with, with Robinson and with uh, Michael Thomas guys that, you know, didn't run four, three, didn't run four, four, but uh, consider consistently make plays at the NFL level. And I think Bateman uh, is next in line with that kind of profile. Uh, let's go now to a guy that's more like the Waddle and more like Smith. And that's, Florida's Kadarius Tony, who I find also to be another really interesting case study because we've been talking about Kadarius Tony on this show for, it feels like six years. Um, but he, this was really the only year where he was, I mean, put up consistently great numbers from a uh, receiving standpoint. And he's, he'd been kind of like a spot player, a, yeah. a, a gadget kind of player. If you look just over his stats, freshman year, sophomore year, junior year, nothing touched what he did this season down in Gainesville. So I'm interested to kind of get your thoughts on what you've seen from Tony on tape. Well, I think that's, you know, he doesn't have a lot of experience as receiver because he wasn't a receiver coming out of high school. He was a running back. Um, yeah. yeah, he was a, he was a high school quarterback. Or a high school quarterback who was like a running back yeah. receiver yeah. hybrid, yeah. Um, I thought he improved throughout the 2020 season. You know, to me, he's, he's a lateral quickness change of direction guy. It allowed him to be effective as a slot running the kind of routes we see in the NFL. Mm. Whip routes, pivot routes, juke routes, angle routes. I mean, he's got explosive quickness as a route runner. He's got stop and start ability. Um, he's got some electric run after catch ability. Um, he's very agile. Um, I think he's tough. I think he's competitive. Uh, they used him lining up in the backfield. So you can see him on jet sweeps, orbit reverses. You know, you want to get the ball in his hands in space and on the move. Screen game. Uh, the big question, I guess, to me is the vertical element. You know, I think... Again, I don't know what he's going to run. I, you know, I, what's your thought on that? I think he, I think he's going to run pretty well. Uh, now, is he going to run what Jalen Waddle run? I, I don't know if he's going to be four two, but I think when you look at at, uh, at Tony, there were a few times where, especially like when you're looking at the the first ten, the first twenty. My guess is that he's going to show some giddy up. He's going to yeah. show some explosiveness. Yeah, I mean, because it's funny. Early in the season, you know, because I watched a lot of games. I watched all his past targets, and then I watched a lot of games because I was watching other Florida players right. on offense. So I saw, you know, I <laughs> I probably saw a ton of, of Kadarius Tony. I thought early in the year maybe he was still a little tentative. Mm -hmm. And I thought 
you know, I'm watching him early in the year and I started to think of like a Randall Cobb. And then as the year progressed, he ran some more vertical routes and did win over the top. So um, I thought he showed more straight line speed, more explosive straight line speed as the season progressed. I think it's important, and I'm not saying that this is specific to Tony, but just speaking about speed receivers in general, guys that are seen as like kind of that vertical weapon. Just because a guy can run 4-2, just because a guy can run 4-3, doesn't mean he could be a good vertical receiver. We've had that discussion before, but uh, would you, you know, for our listeners now for this show, kind of get into how it takes a little bit more than just Correct. running fast in a straight line to be a good downfield weapon in the passing game? No question. I mean, we've seen over the years, there's a lot of guys who run fast who get, get into the NFL and they're not great receivers because rarely in the NFL, it can happen, but rarely are you a great vertical receiver just because you run by people. You know, you have to have some nuance to your route running in order to eat up cushion, in order to get receivers to turn their bodies and then play off that. So, you know, I think Tony's learning all that. He does yep. not have a lot of experience at the position. Um so, uh, you know, I, he's a guy I'm, I'm very curious about. Let me ask you this. How would you compare Tony to K.J. Hamler from a year ago? Oh, see, that's really interesting. <sighs> so, and it's interesting, too, because they're both, you know, came, come in a similar package. They both have that, that speed. Both guys had questionable hands, had issues with some drops. <sighs> They'd be very, very close. They'd be very, very close. See, I saw Hamler as more explosive, but again, I, maybe I'll be wrong. I saw Hamler as more explosive. Interesting. Um, whereas I saw, you know, Tony to me had tremendous lateral quickness and just stop and start. I mean, those routes I mentioned, those whip routes, pivot routes, juke routes, he was terrific yeah, running those routes. No, no question. So look, we've, we've hit on five receivers and five guys that a lot of people think have a, certainly there are locks for the top 10, but others there are for a top a locks for the top half of round one, other guys that have a shot to go late in the first round. There are other handful of guys. I mean, I mean, Tutu Atwell, Rondell Moore, uh, Tylen Wallace, Amari Rogers. You can go down the list. There's a bunch of really, really good receivers in this class. So I'm going to round this out with our sixth player, and I'm going to ask you, who is a guy that you didn't know much about before you studied him, but they just wowed you? And you're like, man, like this guy has the ability to be a quality NFL receiver. Well, I can give you a guy for sure. Okay. Um, and a guy I knew nothing about because I did not do him uh, over last summer. He was one of the guys I was going to get to. I never got to him. Um, and that's Elijah Moore. Interesting. I, I, I really like Elijah Moore. Uh, I thought, you know, I couldn't make the argument. Okay. And, and maybe this will be, you know, bold and controversial. I, I could make the argument that I like Elijah Moore more than, um, Kadarius Tony. Yeah, I mean, they're the same same package. And Elijah Moore is from Ole Miss um, and put up big numbers this year under uh, under um, Lane Kiffin. And then in that offense, I mean, he did some really, really awesome things as a, as a uh, receiver at really at all three levels. Uh, tell us, what, what did you what more did you see from Elijah Moore? Well, first of all, again, I don't have his his numbers like I do with Tony. Um, so I don't know what his actual size is and his weight. But right. But he's thick. He's much thicker than Tony in the in just on tape. He's got route running and separation quickness. He's got vertical burst and speed, really good hands. I thought he was really tough and competitive at the catch point and through contact. There was a physicality to Moore's game that I don't think Tony, I mean, even though I thought Tony was was competitive, he wasn't physical in that way. Mm. Um 
you know, you could say more transitions as a higher level slot receiver. I think he can line up in multiple locations in the formation, including the backfield, which he did. Um, another guy that can be used on jet sweeps and in the screen game. I think he gives you a vertical dimension from the slot. He's explosive run after catch. You know, he's conventionally a slot receiver, Fran, but I think he can be a little more than that. And I really, really liked his tape. And he was fun for me to watch because I knew zero about him, you know, other than his big numbers in the SEC this year. Yeah. I knew zero about him before I put on the tape. So he was virgin territory for me. Yeah, I just had a guy that was very similar to that, uh, the defensive tackle position earlier this week. I talked about him earlier, uh, but I don't want to say his name to you because I don't want to ruin it for you for when you get, <laughs> eventually get to him. But, uh, Greg, this has been fun. We, we hit on six receivers here. We could have hit uh, easily on a, uh, a bunch more. I'm sure we'll do another discussion. Where we could we'll have to have another receiver year. discussion. Yeah. This. So given that over 30 get drafted every year, we're going to have to come back to that because I have two or three guys that you know I would have loved to have mentioned now, but we'll, we'll leave that for, for another time. Yeah, I love it. All right, well, Greg, uh, thanks so much once again for joining us here on the Journey to the Draft podcast. Stay safe, stay healthy. We will talk to you next week. All right, thanks, Rand. Now it's time for Draft Buzz. All right, well, I hope you guys enjoyed that chat with Greg Cosell going through all the top receivers. And uh, Ben, a ton of receivers uh, in this draft. And we're going to talk about a couple of them here in this mock draft. And this week for our uh, mock draft roundup, we're going to go back to pro football focus. Austin Gale put out uh, a new mock draft and there's a bunch of really interesting picks here. And obviously the big headliner was a trade that the Eagles made in the top 10. Well, we'll, we'll save that for the end. I want to get to some of these other picks first and uh, let's go through our favorite pick of the draft. I will uh, let you kick things off here uh, this week. What was your favorite pick when you went through all 32 of these first round selections? And really quick, just kind of taking a step back from the landscape. It's kind of funny to go from the summer into the pre-draft process and into the draft. We know who gets bumped up in the front of the draft, quarterbacks. And this is really the first mock draft I've seen with four straight quarterbacks going to start the draft. And this is really how it's going to trend. Whether it's these teams or not these teams, right. if you need a quarterback, you're going to come up and get one. And that's always how it goes down in the draft. So I think this is starting to trend the way we've seen previous drafts and how I very much expect this draft to go with the quarterbacks being bumped up. And I very much expect to see four quarterbacks going in the, in the first six picks. But my favorite pick of the draft, let's slide all the way down to the once again losers of the NFC Championship game and back-to-back seasons, the Green Bay Packers. Finally, going to the well in the first round to add some talent and some weapons around Aaron Rodgers. And no better than Kadarius Toney at the University of Florida. This guy's a nightmare with the ball in his hands. Excellent route runner. The weird thing, Fran, doesn't really have the home run speed. Has gotten caught from behind a few times, but that's okay. He's great yards after catch. He knows how to get himself open. Matt LaFleur knows how to help get these guys open as well. They need somebody dangerous with the ball in their hands. Tony's a tough guy. He's an elusive guy. And I think he's going to be a great piece to add next to Devontae Adams and Aaron Jones if they could keep him in free agency. But some really good weapons for LaFleur. So you go to the bottom five of the draft. I'm going to go to the top five and what Austin had kind of described as the dream scenario for the Cincinnati Bengals was uh, Penny Sewell falling to them uh, with their selection at number five. And obviously, as you kind of alluded to, if that, if there's an arms race for the quarterbacks in this draft and you have teams moving up into the top five to make sure that they get their quarterback, then it makes it really, really you know likely that Penny Sewell falls to Cincinnati. And I think, obviously, look, uh, they've got Jonah Williams there, former first-round pick. 
He's played right tackle in the past. He can go over and play some right tackle. You can get him on one side. You get Penny on the other side. Now you feel a little bit better about what the the makeup of this offensive line is moving forward. They still need more pieces. It's not going to solve all the issues, um, but getting Penny Sewell, who is about as blue chip as it gets in terms of just the pure talent, what he was able to put on film as just a 19-year-old and as an 18-year-old the year before for the Oregon Ducks. I mean, I know he didn't play this year, but – just an outstanding talent at the position. And uh, the, the Bengals have a huge, huge need would be a huge, a perfect fit. Well, let me put you on the spot just a little bit. As we sit here, middle of February, what percentage likelihood do you see the Bengals selecting at five? Because they got to be calling up everybody and say, over here, guys, you need a quarterback, come take the number five spot and come talk to us. It almost seems like they're in a no man's land spot. What do you think the percentage of the Bengals eventually sitting there at number five. Well, see, I think when you're a team that's picking up in the top five, look, you're, te- you're, you're picking there for a reason, right? You don't have a lot of really talented players on your team. And, and so there's really t- kind of two schools of thought, and it's what all those teams that are picking up that high, you have to kind of weigh this. Do you say, look, are we? do we want elite players? Because this is the part of the draft where you're going to get elite talent. You might not get Penny Sewell if you move down to eight. You might not get Penny Sewell if you move down to 12 or to 15, right? But if you start saying, hey, look, we're, we need a gr- we need great talent, great. I'm going to take Penny Sewell. If you think, okay, I'm going to move down, I get a potential, you know, another top, maybe a first-round pick in the future or uh, certainly a second-round pick in this draft, and I get the opportunity to add even more good talent, then, yeah, then you feel good about that. But you're going to always weigh that and say – do I really want to try and add another blue chipper? Because we don't have a lot of blue chippers on our team. We're, we've been a bad team in Cincinnati for a long time. Let's let's try and go and get. We were we had the number one pick last year. We're the number five pick this year. We just got our quarterback hurt because the offensive line was was really really was one of the worst in the league this past season. Let's get the blue chip guy and let's keep on turning. I, I feel like every team's going to have to have that discussion. No. Yeah, absolutely. And I think these teams sitting here in the top ten that have their quarterbacks of the future are really in that interesting conversation of, do you grab an elite talent for your team? Do you try to stockpile more picks because you obviously need help elsewhere? You're a top 10 selecting team, like you had mentioned, for a reason. Traditionally, you don't just have one need being there. So it's going to be really interesting. And we've seen it cut a number of different ways and different teams with different philosophies. So it will be fun leading up. And I'd imagine the movement in the top 10 will not stop up until the draft time. So I, no. I would expect this order to kind of change up a little bit. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Right, let's get to our next one here. And our favorite pick outside of the top 10 that just made the most sense. And so you went with one uh, earlier. You went with the Kadarius Tony to the Green Bay Packers. So I'll come back to you for another. What, what was the pick outside the top 10 that you were like, man, that, that just makes a lot of sense. I really love that selection. You know, and it's kind of on the heels of the conversation off of Monday. He was the guy I talked about in my film room recap, Asante Samuel Jr. Mm. I feel like we're so enamored with the big press man corners, the physical six foot, 200 pounds, four, four bump and run type of guy. What about the ball hawking zone corners? The guys that click and close and are feisty in the flat. That's Asante Samuel Jr. He's undersized, but has great instincts, great ball skills. He's feisty. And the Buffalo Bills, a zone-based defense, that's a perfect fit there at the 30th overall. Where Asante falls in the draft, I'm still kind of sorting through. I've heard early day three. I've heard some teams like him on day one. I think 30 here is eventually going to be that spot where maybe some of those blue chippers are off the board. Who's next up there? in a spot we need like the Buffalo bills. I think that's a great, great fit. And he's going to be a corner. That's not for everybody, but if it's the right scheme and right fit, I'm all about it at the 30th pick. 
you and I had a, a fun conversation over on the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast this week about uh, teams that play a lot of zone coverage and the traits that they're looking for. I think Asante Samuel Jr. checks a lot of those boxes, uh, and he certainly would fit that system out in Buffalo. That was the fit that you argued for last week when we talked about Danesbach draft was uh, him versus J.C. Horn and just kind of that fun discussion. So uh, not a surprise to see you go that route. I'm going to go well, with the, well, the Colts decided to go at the offensive side of the ball. In this that's one, right. So yeah, that's exactly my pick uh, that I wanted to go with was Rondell Moore uh, going to the Colts. And I think when you look at Rondell Moore, um, you know, a lot of the things that you said about Kadarius, Tony, right. In terms of, uh, you know, small package, but big play potential. He can, you, whether you want to get it to him in the quick game and let him create with the ball in his hands, whether you want to throw it to him over the top, uh, you can go back to what he did as a true freshman against some of the best defenses in college football. Uh, certainly what he did to Ohio State in his true freshman season in 2018 has not played a ton of ball in the last two years, and, that, and that's going to be a little bit worrisome. Uh, but this is a player that when he's on the field is really, really fun. And in that offense, uh, with the yards after catch opportunities, they try and create uh, he'd be a lot of fun to watch. And they're, they're trying to build a track team out there. Uh, Chris Ballard, for the, the general manager for Indianapolis, has talked about that. They want speed on that turf. Uh, and you look at some of the, the players that they've picked over the years, I think that certainly caters to that. Jonathan Taylor, uh, Paris Campbell. You know, they, you go down the line, a lot of the selections they've made has been with that speed on that turf in mind. Uh, but Rondell Moore, I, I do love that selection for the Colts. Yeah, with Naheem Hines and T.Y. Hilton and yep, some right. of our favorite players in the offense are Michael Pittman and Zach Paschal. Right. So many different shapes, sizes, abilities. I'm almost like sending in a letter to the league to say this offense isn't fair at this point. Uh, but you know, you know, you're going to need the depth, the skill players go light up the scoreboards, you know, 2021 football. And I think uh, Frank Wright and the Colts are all systems go and making another run. All right, well, let's go with our most outside the box pick. And that's the selection where it's like, all right, we don't, don't usually see this player paired with this team or, you know, maybe the fit is not necessarily is like a little bit questionable. We don't necessarily see that transition. So uh, let's go with most outside the box pick. I'll let you go first. Well, the weird thing is with this pick is it's not that I haven't seen it in so many spots is I keep seeing it in spots and I don't mm. necessarily agree with it. And that's USC offensive lineman Elijah Vera Tucker to the Baltimore Ravens on the back half of round one. I think the Ravens certainly need some O-line help, some depth. But that particular selection, what's the first thing in everybody's report of Vera Tucker? Can play guard tackle, excellent movement off the ball, good for his own scheme. The Ravens, power scheme, man scheme, vertical displacement, downhill rushing attack. I'm just not sure that style of offensive lineman is going to be a natural fit for that scheme. Listen, I love Vera Tucker. I think he's going to be a good pro in any scheme. But if we're just talking about positional fits and maybe your flavors for what you run, I just think they would want a little bit more of a people mover in that offense, more of that vertical, knock guys off the ball, get the downhill running game go. And then Vera Tucker, I thought he'd be a great fit for outside zone scheme. You know, someone with that good quickness, the lateral agility off the ball. Um, but, you know, it's still a really good player. And I think he's going to be a good pro elsewhere. It's funny because I actually went almost the inverse of what you did. I, I went with Christian Darashaw going to the Minnesota Vikings, and I don't because I, I look at Darashaw as that let's vertical displacement play. Let's, yeah, let's, let's no doubt. Like, <laughs> let's get Darashaw to Baltimore. Let's get Vera Tucker over to Minnesota, and now we're cooking. I, I didn't necessarily see Darashaw as like that great fit for uh, that outside zone scheme. They're going to be running that same stretch run scheme uh, under Gary Kubiak's son, who's now the offensive coordinator in Minnesota. Uh, I didn't. And I think that kind of plays with the tackles they've brought in. 
in, right? Look at the guys that they've brought in over the years. They've been the, you know, the Brian O'Neills and the Ezra Clevelands and uh, even going back to Matt Khalil. Yeah, yeah, that was before Kubiak got there. But you get what I'm saying is that uh, they're going for more of those like long, lean, athletic uh, types of offensive linemen. Even if you wanted to go tackle, like, you know, if you want to say Dylan Radin's going to, to, uh, to Minnesota. I, I like that fit. I think Darashaw is more of what you're saying, like that straight ahead, hey, I want to just push people off the ball. That's kind of where I see him fitting. I just see Darashaw as a great fit in the AFC North, whether it was right. the Steelers, yep. like we talked about last week, and maybe taking over for a Villanueva at left tackle, or the Baltimore Ravens. I just think he has that kind of cold weather, outside, nasty type of mentality. I think the AFC North would welcome him with open arms. So going back, just because you brought up the AFC North, so if you're Cincy, right, and let's say you're, you're, you're picking at five and you've got the ability, someone, uh, let's say like a Washington, right, who's picking at 19, wants to move up and they want to get their quarterback, right? Their quarterback falls to them and they, and they want to make that giant move up. They're going to give you 19. They're going to give you a two this year and a one next year, like, a, like an RG3 style package to move all the way up from 19 to five. And you, Garrett, you say, if you're Cincinnati, all right, well, we can either take Penny Sewell or I take a couple picks and Christian Darashaw. What do you think about that? That's not bad. Or it could be in the Rashawn Slater country as well, too, right. yep. as another as another type of pick there. So I think there's comparable depth as much as we all love, you know, Penny Sewell. And we think he's going to be an elite type of prospect. He's a rare prospect. It's a deep tackle class. So they may have guys that they feel are day one starters later in the first round, maybe early day two. And that's what that, you know, the weighing the cat in the mouse of saying, you know, is there comparable talent later to get? And I think in this draft that the positions they're looking for, like tackle, there is. Are right, you're Duke Tobin, you're Zach Taylor. You, you feel like you're leaning one way or the other there? I'd struggle with that. I feel like I'd almost like say like, I, I just give me, I mean, I guess it depends on what the pick package is and everything, but I'd have a, I'd have a hard time turning down Penny. I would, if I was the Cincinnati Bengals and I had the opportunity to talk with a local beat reporter in Cincinnati, Lindsey Patterson, a couple of weeks ago to really go right. over this team, I would get out of that number five pick at all costs. I think they have too many other needs. I think the quarterback, I'm going to roll with Jonah Williams at left tackle. Let's add as many weapons and trench players as we can. Uh, I think it's still another rebuild year. So getting that player at five, I think I would rather try to stock pile maybe two first round picks between 10 and 25 all right let's get to our next one here favorite connect the dots pick where uh we like the the relationship with the decision makers to the college program uh that the the player was selected from Uh, i'll let you go first here what'd you think all right so i'm stretching on this one here i'm really connecting some dots i have my (laughs) wingspans full here connecting them so i really like jeremiah owusu koromoa to the browns I think they need some back end help as, you know, in combination with some more stability at that linebacker outside linebacker position, they've used a variety of players at safety and linebacker the past few years, but Kevin Stefanski was with the Minnesota Vikings for a number of years. He was there when they comfortably took Harrison Smith at another Dame and has been a blue chip player for them and a captain for so long. Hmm. Andrew Barry in his previous stint with the Browns before uh, leaving for Philadelphia and then back to the Browns took Jabril Peppers. So that's a similar type of hybrid linebacker safety. And then in the last calendar year, look at the positional need. They made a a trade for Ronnie Harrison. They took Grant Delpit in round two. They signed Sandejo off the street, Carl Joseph off the street to play significant snaps. This is an area they're looking to improve, get better, and address. So I think a lot of the dot connecting there is all swirling to say, 
let's find this positional home for the next 10 years in Owusu-Koromoa. Dude, he, he's a safety all day, right? I mean, in, you've, been, my, you've, you've, you've been pounding that drum for months, but I feel like some people are starting to, starting to get back on that. But uh, the way I look at it, I'm like, I'm looking at him as a safety. Yeah, you know, I think a lot of the projections are Will Linebacker, can he be Deion Jones? Can he be Telvin Smith? And while those guys were are outstanding linebackers, athletic, the mold, they're more the outlier. And I think I've learned too many lessons in the past of these halfway players, the hybrid nickel safeties playing out there in space, like the Darren Lees running 4-4 at 235, comes to the NFL and can't play Will Linebacker for a lick. That's not a catch-all position. It's just my buyer beware to say, it's okay to keep them at safety. It's a sub-package world. It's becoming a big nickel world. We need a box safety as a core player. We need somebody to enforce the alleys as a core player. The way he plays at Notre Dame is a big nickel outside linebacker in the NFL. That's okay. Don't shove him into a mic or a will box and have this 210-pound safety struggle to take on blocks and sort through traffic. Let him play out in space and open pastures, use that speed, maybe contribute and run support and be that last hat in unaccounted for. But don't just lump in all these oversized safeties, undersized edge rushers into Will Linebacker. That's not how it works. So uh, I think that's a, a really interesting point. I think it's a, a fun discussion to continue to have. I think it's a, a lot of the same things we discussed last year with Isaiah Simmons. They're built so differently, and I, I feel like that's why it hasn't really tilted that way. But Owusu uh, Koromoa, I, I think it's a lot of the same strengths that you loved with Isaiah Simmons last year in terms of his usage. They're just they just come in a different package. Uh, you know, I listed Simmons as a safety last year in my personal notes. He gets drafted by Arizona. He they they make him a linebacker. There were some early struggles, and then they kind of found a role for him but at the end of the day he was a sub package piece for them he was a matchup player so whether you list him at safety linebacker I mean I guess at the end of the day it doesn't necessarily matter if he's all he is is that sub package player if he's a specialty player not an every down guy but then you're starting to get into the, into the question of well if he's not an every down guy where are we taking are we taking him in the first round am I going to invest that kind of resource in him it's a it's a really fun conversation to have. and is this sure. not the kind of conversation we had with Jabril Peppers which at Michigan was often in the box near the line of scrimmage and run support. We thought this is the new linebacker, the 215-pound linebacker is the next in the NFL. And in his first stint with Cleveland, really struggled to find a positional fit in a steady down-to-down role. I think he's really carved out a nice career now that he's with the Giants. But uh, those early days in Cleveland, you had to have a plan for these types of players as opposed to just saying, he can do it all. Let's have him do it all. And next thing you know, he's going to do nothing for you. All right, so let's get to our uh, – so actually, before we get to our next one, i got to give you mine. Uh, Christian Barmore to the Pats at 15. And obviously, look, the, the connection is Bill Belichick, Nick Saban. All right, there's not a lot more that needs to be said there. I think you can look back um, to some defensive tackles that Bill Belichick has invested in in recent years. I almost think of like a Malcolm Brown. Uh, with when uh, they took Malcolm Brown out of Texas, uh, I believe was the last pick of the first round a couple of years ago. I think Barmore offers a little bit of that, but really just his pass rush upside. And again, uh, you love the uh, the Saban and Belichick uh, connection there. Ultimately, that's why I went with that as my connect the dots selection. Let's go to our next category here. A lot of trench players in this draft. 13 uh, offensive linemen, defensive linemen in round one. So I want to ask you, which of the uh, matchups here did you like most? Which p- pick in the trenches uh, did you really uh, feel like was a good fit? 
A couple here. I like Tevin Jenkins to the Bears. I think whether he plays tackle guard, he just has this nasty type of feel. There's nothing finesse for him. He's going to love some outside uh, games in the NFC North there, some bad weather games. He's just a guy that seems to fit the aesthetic of the team. They're going to love him there. And then two edge rushers, Aziz Oljolari to the Titans, similar type of mold to Harold Landry and that loose, flexible edge rusher. Uh, Seems like he'll be much more ready to go, better run defender. But I like the Raiders kind of ebbing and flowing a different direction. Let's go get some trait guys, Fran. We've obviously, you know, been on the the off the field, big program guys, the safe players, the high floor players, maybe lacking a little bit of the upside, the explosive niche, the twitch. So let's go get a Jason Oway from the Penn State Nittany mm-hmm. Lions who hasn't really produced. But we all know he might have the best upside out of yep. any edge rusher in this class. He's a height, weight, speed freak. We're going to be obviously talking about him more in the next couple of months because the second he gets in a shorts and t-shirts, they're going to be like, well, where, where, where'd they grow this kid into a lab? He's going to to run low four fours, high four threes. In general. (laughs) Yeah. They're going to, they're going to need every news outlet when Micah Parsons and Oway and all these freak shows are uh, testing down there at Penn state. But uh, I just like to see the Raiders maybe get a little bit more of a trait based prospect Mm -hmm. to go with some of those safer players on the defensive front. Uh, for me, I went with, this is kind of like an aesthetic feel in Jalen Phillips to the Steelers. And I don't know that that's like a great fit from a, uh, you know, checking all the boxes that Pittsburgh looks for, um, both on and off the field. But when I'm looking at like TJ Watt, when TJ Watt was coming out of Wisconsin, and then I look at Jalen Phillips at Miami, I kind of think I see a lot of similarities there. Would you, would you agree with that in terms of the build, how they win? I kind of feel like that that fits. And, and I don't know if Jalen Phillips is going to go that high. I, my guess is that he probably won't. I don't know, but I guess we'll see. Uh, he certainly is in a lot of mock drafts um, as going in round one. But that's the one where I'm like, I kind of see from an aesthetic standpoint, him to TJ Watt uh, when w- Watt was coming out of Wisconsin and the, the contract situation there with Watt has got to get kind of sorted out as well. Uh, that one kind of fits for me. Yeah, and I think that's fair. And I think when you look at a Jalen Phillips, you see the long limbs and kind of the angular frame. Yep. But this is not a runaround defensive end. This is a guy that wins consistently with power, especially speed to power. So just like TJ Watt isn't really a runaround type either. He's a guy that likes to play through contact. He can obviously go right through offensive linemen. He plays a really good effort, motor, pass rush plan, awareness you know, flattening at the top of rushes, retracing, never getting behind the quarterback, all that technically sound stuff. Check all those boxes for Jalen Phillips too. It's same type of player. But when you look at him, you think he's going to be this speedy, loose edge rusher that wants to go high side all the time because of his frame. He's a much stronger, more powerful player than I think uh, his frame or his look would uh, uh, suggest. All right, well, let's get to the uh, the moment that all the Eagles fans that are listening have been waiting for, and that's where we look at the Eagles selection. And uh, this one made some waves on the interwebs uh, earlier this week, Ben, because uh, Austin had the Eagles trading up to select quarterback Justin Fields from Ohio State. Here is the blurb. Uh, the Eagles need to get aggressive at upgrading at the quarterback spot in April's draft. Rookie Jalen Hurts showed flashes of competence as the team starter, but he still finished as uh, the, he still finished the last four weeks of the season as one of the lowest grades quarterbacks. Fields has his own fair share of concerns as a prospect, but he's still the number three overall player on PFF's board and the first-ranked college quarterback in terms of PFF passing grade over the past two seasons. So, uh, Look, we can talk about Justin Fields and uh, what we feel, you know, are his strengths coming into the NFL. I mean, 
First of all, the arm talent certainly there. He's got that ability to make those second reaction plays. You love his toughness and his ability. Uh, you know, certainly that everyone's going to point to that Clemson game, right, to the semifinal game, and uh, you know, just the guy just got obliterated. It's like with that hit from James Skalski, uh, not a lot of guys being able to play through that. Not only did he play through that, but he excelled. And you have to love uh, the toughness and the grit that he showed, especially in that game. Yeah, absolutely. And I think his style and scheme is much more pro-ready than people may suggest. It really wasn't a spread offense, wasn't a shotgun-based point-and-shoot type of offense. A lot of under center, a lot of multiple tight end, a lot of turning his back to the defense, long-developing play-action stuff. So don't throw him the keys and make him throw it 50 times a game. I think he's a piece that implement into a scheme, into a balanced offense. And I think he did that at Ohio State really well. So I think it's kind of a you know, buyer beware, third overall pick. He's not the franchise savior. He's a guy to come execute your scheme. And if you have a well-designed, well-balanced scheme, uh, obviously a good offensive line and weapons around him, he's going to look like a stud. And he's going to, you know, go far like he did with Ohio State and be a contending team. But I don't think any of these quarterbacks, even Trevor Lawrence, Fran, are saviors. I think they all need to be put into properly designed schemes, balanced offenses, and then they can go and execute. So don't, you know, expect any of these guys to drop back 40, 50 times and make it rain all over the yard on Sundays. I think they need to still come in and operate your offense. I think with with uh, all these guys, you would have to make that argument. Really, it's, it's all about young quarterbacks coming into today's league in general. All right. I and mean, that's what to me, it's like, all right, let, let get the young quarterback in do everything possible to find ways for him to succeed and get him to that point where now you do, you could take the training wheels off and that for guys, that's going to take a little bit more time um, than others. You know, it's going to change uh, from player to player, but ultimately it's all about trying to find ways to let this guy succeed. And that's why I feel like we are seeing, and this is just anecdotal. I haven't charted this or anything. I feel like we're seeing a more, uh, a more successful hit rate for these quarterbacks coming out. This isn't like, you know, 2011, we're like, Oh, seven quarterbacks go in the first round. And the only guy that succeeds early is Cam Newton. Like they're, they're finding teams are finding ways to build around the quarterback, do things that are friendly for him. Um, you know, I think when you look at Justin Fields, you could find ways to create, you know, successful situations for him years ago. If this was, you know, uh, Fran Duffy in 2016, I'd have a lot of reservations about Justin Fields and say like, man, I just don't know how this guy's going to be ready to play right away. Uh, you know, the, the, there are just too many things from a, a mental standpoint that I just don't feel like he's good enough yet. But man, we, I mean, we've seen guys come in with the, these same issues and excel in year one. Even like Dak Prescott is the big one for me. Like I, I had major questions about Dak Prescott on the field by year two. That was all gone. You know, and you just saw just a, a different player. We talked about that when the Eagles selected Jalen Hurts uh, in the second round last spring. And I feel that, that way about, just, about Justin Fields as well. Yeah, and I feel like offenses obviously are becoming much more quarterback friendly using some of those schemes and systems that these quarterbacks have used on Fridays and Saturdays into the NFL. And then saying, who do we have? How do we help him? What is he like? What doesn't he like? As, a tr- as opposed to saying, this is my system. This is the verbiage. Come and run it. This is how it's been run for 20 years. Yep. That era of offensive coaching is kind of dying if it hasn't already completely died out. Right. Um, some of the last ones were like the John Gruden's of the world. Yeah, we're so adamant about how things were supposed to be run. There was very little flexibility to his scheme and adapting to the talent you have, but you have to. And I think allowing these quarterbacks that were successful on Saturdays to do what made them successful on Saturdays is part of getting 
early production, positive results out of these young quarterbacks. And I think the offenses are a little bit more paint by numbers. But, Fran, that's okay. Not Why no put so much pressure on these yep. young quarterbacks? It is hard to play quarterback. What can we do to help them? Whether it's commit to a run game, RPOs, adding in air raid elements, even the West Coast offense to a T was to make offense more quarterback friendly. Triangle reads. We have a man beater, a zone beater, and a pressure beater in every play. It's an extension of the run game, quick passing game. The whole idea of the West Coast was to make it easier on the quarterback. And this is the funny conversations we go about who gets credit and for stuff. And that's the Montana Bill Walsh. And, oh, well, it was Bill Walsh's system, and it was Montana executing it. If he didn't have Bill Walsh, he wouldn't be as successful. And I think having a well-designed offense and making it quarterback friendly is part of playing football and winning games. And, you know, looking for this field general, this offensive coordinator under center like Peyton Manning, that doesn't exist. And I think we finally got out of looking for that type of player, trying to make every early blue chip drafty a Peyton Manning type. That's not replicate. You know, you can't replicate that. Don't look at an outlier and say, let's go find another one of them. And whether it's the linebackers of the world we talked about a half hour ago or the quarterback, don't look at an outlier and say, we need one of those. Yep. It's a, a conversation that we can definitely do a whole podcast just around it. Maybe at some point uh, we will do uh, exactly that. Well, Ben, uh, this has been fun. We've been talking about Justin Fields for the last few minutes. Let's catch up with his teammate, uh, Tommy Togiai. Before I get there, just a quick reminder, go check out Austin Gale's uh, full mock draft. We went through, uh, what, seven picks, uh, 10 picks, 11 picks. Go, go check out all 32 over at Pro Football Focus. Good stuff there uh, from Austin. Now, that being said, let's talk with uh, Justin Fields' teammate, Tommy Togiai, uh, right now in our unofficial visit. The unofficial visit. Well, excited to be talking to you today, Ohio State defensive tackle Tommy Togiai. Tommy, thank you for joining me here on the Journey to the Draft podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. So let's talk through uh, your play on the field. For fans who have not seen you play, uh, give us uh, give us your best scouting report of yourself and what you'll bring to your future NFL team. Uh, I mean, a hardworking guy. Uh, play 110% every play, uh, physical, my hands, and then I can rush the passer as well. So the, you talked about how physical you are with your hands. Where did that come from? Was that always an aspect of your game? And, and how has that changed uh, for you throughout the course of your career at Ohio State? Yeah, I think even back to when I was in high school, I kind of was yeah, a physical player. But then even uh, going to Ohio State, I think Coach Johnson kind of really developed even even greater with my technique and stuff like that. Is there one area of your game that you're kind of working on during uh, these, you know, these, these few months leading up to the NFL draft? You're like, all right, this is something I definitely want to kind of hone in on outside of the athletic testing part. Yeah, I'm trying to, I mean, I've been trying to improve yeah, my pass rushing ability, some of my get off and hand work and stuff like that. One, I know one part of watching p- players that come out of Ohio state is coach Johnson really preaches eating up ground while you're using your hands and being able to try and uh, win in multiple ways, at the top of the rush. Uh, is that something that he kind of preached to you and how long did it kind of take that for you re- to really be able to see the dividends from that uh, on film? Yeah. So yeah, that's like Co- coach Jay's uh, best thing is his uh, pass rushing techniques. Like, I mean, he's, I mean, he's the reason why they call him the goat in the business <laughs> I mean, it all starts, yeah, he'll tell you all starts with your get-off, and then from there, using your hands, and then, yeah, continue to get upfield with it. 
So who was the best player? Uh, and you went up against a lot of quality offensive linemen in the Big Ten. But uh, we'll say just from this past season, who who impressed you most? Who gave you uh, the stiffest challenge from uh, the players that you saw this year on film on the field? From this season, I would think maybe I thought uh, Northwestern line did a pretty good job. Uh, their movements and then just like how they schemed, I think they were they did a lot of good things well. And then. Uh, Clemson had a good O-line as well. I think uh, they did some things. Uh, but, yeah, I'd say probably just those two O-lines were probably the best we faced. Yeah. So that Clemson game uh, was outstanding. It was definitely my favorite film that, I, that I'd seen from you this year. Is there, uh, in your mind, when you think back on your career or even just this past season as a junior, was there one play that kind of stands out to you as like, all right, like, uh, you know, for a fan that's never seen me play or a scout or a coach that's never seen me play, this is the first play I want them to see uh, when they turn on the film. Uh, you talk about play from this past season? Uh, it could be from any time in your career. Whichever one that stands out to you, like, yeah, this this is the play. Uh, there was a play Northwestern last year. Okay. So the quarterback was rolling out to the other hash, and then he, he decided to run. And I was lined up on the opposite hash, so I was rushing. And then uh, I, like, ran him down. So that was kind of – that just kind of shows you I never give up on plays. I always try to run to the ball as hard as I can. So that will probably be one play. And then even this – uh, this from this past season, there was another play. It was actually in our first game against Nebraska. Uh, they kind of had a long run around the outside, but uh, I also had kind of another like just a chase down kind of little thing. So yeah, just like right. that, just like that, that effort. I like I like to showcase that. I always try to give my best effort each play. I was gonna say that that's, that stands out to me that th- those were the two plays they kind of point out. It's like all right, like watch me close from behind. Watch uh, you know the constant effort uh, that I bring. Is that always been the case? Like even going back to when you first started playing. Yeah, even yeah, all the way back to my little league days. I was just kind of like, I mean, the hard work will always beat talent. I, I mean, I love that saying. I mean, you always got to go as hard as you can. You never know which play is gonna like gonna be the defining play. So you have to play every play like it's gonna mean something. Did you always play D line? Yeah, yeah. So I, in little league, I played like a little bit of O line and D line. But in high school, yeah, when they just yeah, just D line. When uh, what what was that like for you when you just focus in just on D line? Like, were you were you happy that you weren't going to be an O lineman anymore? Like, uh, what was that yeah. conversation like? Yeah, it definitely was. I love <laughs> just being yeah, more on the defensive side of the ball. I mean, yeah. So yeah, it was a big yeah joy just to be on yeah, to be a D lineman. What was the toughest thing that you had to overcome as, as a player? You know, the the most on field adversity uh, that you've had to face. I really had too much. Maybe like too much. Like I've been uh, knock on wood healthy. I haven't had to deal with sure. No, uh, Injuries and stuff like that. Uh, maybe when I first get into Ohio State, the first two years, I was kind of just in the rotation. So I mean, kind of had to like wait my turn. But also, like, I was also grateful for that because I also got to learn from the guys ahead of me. So that was kind of a big thing. But also, yeah, so just kind of being patient, I'd see, probably be the biggest thing. So I remember talking, I've talked with a bunch of your former teammates, you know, Davon Hamilton, I talked to at the senior bowl last yeah. year and he told me he's straight up. He was like, uh, Tommy Togia is the guy next year, uh, that, you know, you'll be, you'll be talking about. So, and he was dead on with that and he gave a great scouting report on you. Uh, I want to first, I wanna, I'm going to ask you about who's coming down the line for Ohio state, but I want to ask you first, I mean, you kind of mentioned that you came in and you, you weren't like this, you know, outspoken guy, you you came in and just put your head down and got right to work. Did you feel? Did you feel that you kind of earned that respect? You know, as your freshman year was coming along, even though you weren't playing as much, that uh, you were kind of building that reputation. Yeah, I mean, yeah, especially my freshman year. Uh, 
I know, like the I don't know if you know about much about like our black stripes when you're a freshman. Sure. You oh yeah. Yes, and then I got because I, I enrolled early to Ohio State, and then I was the only other like one other freshman to get my black stripe stripe off after our, the, just the spring ball. So yeah. So yeah. so explain it for the listeners. So uh, you come in and you've got the black stripe on the on the helmet to yeah, start, freshman, right? Yeah. Freshman come in, you have a black stripe on your helmet, and then that's like the first thing you want to do is get your black stripe off. And it's like up to your teammates and your coaches that see like the work you put in on and off the field, mm. just how you carry yourself too. And then, yeah, just how you ball out too. Like if you're making plays and stuff like that, doing what you're supposed to do. Who's the guy coming down the pipe for Ohio State that, uh, you know, maybe we're not talking about right now, but a year from now we're all going to be talking about? Uh, I think there's a few guys. I think next year, this next season, you're going to see, I mean, Haskell, of course, again, it's going to sure. be, and then I think, I think Teron Vincent and Jerron Cage are going to have a chance to do kind of get that step up. Like maybe they didn't, they're like in that patient role, like how I was uh, the past two seasons, but I think they'll get a chance to showcase what they can do. And then obviously Tyreek Smith too is going to yep. be back and he's going to be doing something special too. What's your, uh, what's your favorite pass rush move? Uh, probably stab club. So, yeah. And a lot, a lot of that is going to be timing, right? I mean, you're going to change yeah. that. I don't, and I don't want you to give up your, your secret sauce or anything. I don't want to give any offensive lineman any advantage, no. but, uh, but take us through when you say stab club, uh, for the listeners, what, what does that look like? So I mainly try to do that only when I find rushing out of three technique. Okay. Stab club basically is like, I mean, when you're getting off, you got to set up the, yeah, set up all the moves, just getting off the ball and then kind of just waiting on the, kind of shoot uh, your inside hand to, into the uh, offensive guard's chest and then see what he does from there. If he brings his hands up, that's when you bring the club. And he kind of can set up a lot of moves that way, just kind of, yeah. And I, and I like what you said, too, about that's kind of when you're when you're lined up at three. You'll I don't want you to get into moves from other spots, but you will kind of diversify depending on your technique, where, where you're lined up along the line, right? Yeah, so, yeah, I can. I think I can play in a pretty multi-system anywhere in the NFL, kind of just like either play nose guard or a three-technique position if I need to, too. So I think I'm kind of diverse in that situation, in that uh, sense, kind of like can play interior uh, anywhere inside. And then my last question for you, Tommy, what's your goal as a rookie? Uh, what, do you, what do you want to have accomplished uh, a year from now? I want to try to work my way to be into the starting lineup, try to get to be a starter, and then, yeah, just go from there, try to make the all-rookie team and stuff like that. Well, Tommy, this has been awesome, man. I really appreciate you taking some time uh, out from training. You're, you're out in Arizona getting ready uh, for the NFL draft. Best of luck for your pro day moving forward. I'm not going to ask you to predict any times or anything like that, but uh, I know we'll all be impressed uh, with what you do out in the turf. We appreciate you joining us here on the Journey to the Draft podcast driven by AAA. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now it's time to hear from you, the fans, in the draft mailbag. Hope you enjoyed that chat there with Tommy Togiai, who was gracious enough to take a little bit of time away from some training and join me here on the show. Always fun uh, catching up with these guys whenever I can. Like I said last week when I caught up with Aaron Robinson, if you didn't hear that conversation, go check that out. You know, I'm not going to be able to get to a bunch of players, but if we can get one here and there uh, before the draft, I'll, I'll try and see if we can sneak them in whenever possible. Uh, let's get to a couple of your questions at home. And again, the best way to reach us and the best way also to throw us your support is to go into Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, leave us a rating, leave us a comment, write him, left a five-star review saying, hey, friend, thinking about the new head coach for the Eagles, Nick Sirianni, and how he mentioned his six principles and going into this job with the idea to just maximize the players to what they do best and possibly run a more matchup-based offense. And I was wondering, other than Kyle Pitts, 
Who are some prospects that are best used as a matchup piece? I know every prospect has a certain way that maximizes their chance to win, but who are some players that just have a massive size or great agility or one particular trait that can be maximized if used a certain way? If possible, name three on defense and three on offense at the different skill positions with no round limitations. So, Will, that's a great question, a great exercise. So I took your question and I uh, went through, I gave you, I'm going to, Pull three on offense, three on defense, and the 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 thing you're talking about, you know, that one specific trait that they can hang their hat on. Uh, there are a lot of guys that uh, are much smarter than me that will point to say that's their that's their trump card, right? That's their thing that they can always lean on, and that's going to get them into the door and allow them to excel early in the league. And, uh, you mentioned Kyle Pitts; he's certainly one of those players. And I think uh, one other one is a guy that we talked about earlier here on the show, and that's Jalen Waddle from Alabama. I think when you look at just how electric he is, both with and without the football, I mentioned earlier in my chat with Greg that I feel like he's even more dynamic than Henry. Ruggs was coming out of Alabama last year from that same offense. I think Waddle is similar to Tyreek Hill in that he's got that ability not just to be completely uh, explosive in a straight line, but he is so explosive in and out of cuts as well. There is no slowdown at all when he gets into and out of a break. I think when you look at Jalen Waddle, he is that kind of electric athlete. Uh, and at that size, with that level of competitiveness, with what he can do uh, as a receiver at all three levels, that's what makes him one of the most intriguing players in this class. So uh, I would say Jalen Waddle, number one. Number two, I'm going to go with Tutu Atwell, who I think does a lot of those same things. And, and really, I mean, I could have said Kadarius Tony. I could have said uh, Rondell Moore from Purdue. I really love Rondell Moore. Uh, Greg brought up Elijah Moore. I think you could put all these guys into this bucket as kind of smaller uh, offensive weapon types. You know, in, in years past, you would have said, oh, this guy's just a slot receiver, or you know, what the what is this guy? Look, when I look at Tutu Atwell, he is an explosive athlete who can track the ball over the shoulder. You can get him the ball on short routes and let him create. Uh, he is a matchup nightmare as well. So I think you look at him, you look at Elijah Moore, you look at uh, Kadarius Tony, you look at Rondell Moore, all these guys I could say the same things about. Atwell, really, really dynamic playmaker uh, who can w- win in a lot of different ways. So uh, Jalen Waddle, number one. Tutu Atwell, number two. Uh, I'm going to go with the running back position here. And I'm going to go with Puka Williams. And I think when you look at Puka Williams uh, out of Kansas, look, there's going to be uh, some things that need to be cleared up from an off-the-field standpoint. And, uh, you know, that obviously is a separate part of what I'm talking about. When you look at it from a pure off-field stand or a pure on-field standpoint, I think you look at Puka Williams as one of the more dynamic options in the running back class here this spring. And I think when you look at Puka, he was always featured as a pass catcher. And it felt like when I watched him in 2019, every game they were dialing up some kind of vertical route concept, getting him down the seam, using him on corner routes, on sail routes, just finding ways uh, to be able to get him the ball at the second and third level. And and when you look at running backs uh, and how they're used in today's game, I think certain coaches will really be able to maximize what they get out of Puka Williams. He's not going to be an every down runner, a grinder between the tackles, but if you're looking for a pure mismatch weapon out of the backfield, that is certainly uh, what Puka can bring to the table. Let's go to the defensive side. And the first guy I want to bring up, Zaven Collins from Tulsa. And this is a guy that, you know, for the most part is being mocked to, you know, late round one. I think there's a chance he goes uh, early round two. At his size, you know, once he's 6'4", 260, you don't see a lot of guys at the linebacker position these days, you know, playing at that size, right? But that's because he is a rare athlete for the position as well. His ability to make plays from sideline to sideline, he can make plays in coverage, he can come down and rush the passer. I think he's kind of untapped there in terms of being able to get after the quarterback. He can still defend the run. He's a really, really intriguing player. 
that being said, I think that his skill set, he's almost like a uh, jack, uh, jack of all trades, master of none at this point in his career, right? He can do a lot of different things, but what what is it that he can really lean his hat on? Right now, you lean on his athleticism, his size, height, weight, speed, right? That's kind of what you're looking at with Zayvon Collins. So the right defensive coach will be able to look at that and say, okay, we're going to try and move him around and really kind of get the most out of his skill set. And I think there are some co- some coaches, some schemes where that plays really well to, and there are some where it's like, all right, we're going to just try and ask him to do this, and this is all we're going to ask him to do. Now, that, that might work as well. I'm not saying that that won't work with Zayvon Collins, but you're not getting the, the – if you're saying that the versatility is such a big part of the evaluation, if you're only going to ask him to do this – well, that takes that versatility and throws it out the window, right? So I think that that's he's a really interesting player, an interesting case study, certainly, moving forward into the NFL. Another one would be Greg Rousseau. And Rousseau, just a small sample size. I mean, a converted high school wide receiver in safety who only made the move to defensive line a couple of years ago, uh, but was extremely productive in 2019, led the led the country in sacks. And you know, what he was asked to do, uh, basically just win with length and athleticism. And they didn't, he didn't always do it against tackles. They would line him up inside over the center and over guards and just say, yeah, just go be faster than that guy. Go be more athletic than that guy. Uh, not a refined player right now. I thought he got a little bit better as his junior or as his sophomore season went on. But man, he is he is an intriguing ball of clay that's just not a finished product. You're trying to project what he can be down the road. But when you looked at how they were able to use him on that defensive line and work him inside, work him outside, work him against guards, centers, tackles, tight ends, uh, that's the kind of mismatch player you're looking for uh, in, in today's league along the defensive front. So I would say Greg Rousseau would be my fifth player. And then my sixth one, and this isn't necessarily like, I think he's a little bit different in terms of what we're having this discussion, but Asante Samuel Jr. is just a player I want to talk about because he's so instinctive and he's going to be, he's not going to be for everybody because if you're a man coverage scheme only, uh, he may not have as much value, but if you are a heavy zone team, he is going to play really, really well for you. He's got great eyes. He's got a great feel. He's got great ball skills, uh, showed the ability to jump routes. I mean, he's very, very similar, honestly, to how his dad played. So uh, for people that watched Asante Samuel, his dad, uh, when he was in New England and when he was in Philadelphia or in Atlanta – that's the kind of player Asante Samuel Jr. is. He, he is going to be a ball-hawking player, uh, eyes on the quarterback, let me break on throws uh, and make plays at the catch point. Only he didn't have an interception coming into this year, but was able to jump some throws. Uh, you saw that disruptive ability, uh, and you see a lot of that with Asante Samuel Jr. So, uh, Wilt, hope you enjoyed uh, my answer there. I hope I was able to cover uh, kind of the, 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 the different kinds of players that you were looking for. That was our one question from our Apple Podcast page. The best way to go on and throw us your support is to go there. That's where I want you to go and leave your question, leave your comment, uh, and that'll get to us. I do want to get to one uh, that we did get on Twitter. Jason Feldman uh, left a, a comment on uh, on my Twitter page saying, Love the show. Keep up the great work. Curious to get your thoughts on the top two corner prospects at number six. Who do you think would fit better in Philadelphia under the new defensive coordinator, Jonathan Gannon? Would it be Patrick Sertan or Caleb Farley? Do you expect more press man in 2021 or more hybrid zone schemes uh, like a Mike Zimmer or a Nick Saban. So, uh, Jason, really appreciate the question. And if you're into this topic, if you want to learn more about the potential defensive scheme here in Philadelphia, I would encourage you guys to go over and listen to this week's Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast, where uh, Ben and I actually, we went back and watched a lot of the big plays that this Colts defense created this past season and talked about how that could translate to Philadelphia. So if you have not heard that, make sure you go and buy And honestly, regardless of what team you root for, 
it's just a good kind of a, a look at a defense that, number one, was one of the best defenses in the league this year. But then number two, the traits that you look for to play in a zone coverage scheme like that. And, uh, you know, I just got done talking about Asante Samuel Jr. He presents a lot of those same traits that we're talking about that fit in that kind of system. When you're looking at Sertan and Farley, I think both guys are really, really impressive. And it's in terms of, you know, cornerback prospects, they're, they have the ability to be blue chip players in this league. Now, they they are built somewhat similarly in that they are big, long kids. I think both guys have good size for the position. I think with Farley, you're looking at a pure you know, press man kind of situation where he's got outstanding recovery speed. He's got the length. He's a raw player, a converted high school quarterback who went to Virginia Tech as a receiver and then made the move to corner just a couple of years ago. So he's very green at the position. But when you look at his traits overall, he's not a, a finished product right now as a run defender. He's going to have to get a little bit better in that area. But there's a reason why I compared him to C.J. Henderson coming out of Florida last year. I think he was kind of similar in that he had the size, the length, Rare speed for the position, but then also, you know, he needed to refine things as a tackler. That's kind of how I view Caleb Farley. Then you look at Patrick Sertan. You know, Farley, very, very green. Patrick Sertan's been groomed for this moment uh, really since he left the womb, right? Ever since he came in, uh, came into this world, uh, you know, he was being groomed to be an NFL corner. And I think when you look at the way that he plays, very, very instinctive. He's not, I don't think he's quite the athlete that Farley is but he's instinctive, he's tough, he's got a great feel uh, for everything that's happening around him, he's very competitive, he came in and started as a freshman for Nick Saban, that is not easy to do, especially in the secondary, and I think that speaks uh, you know, to his FBI and to his football character. So I think when you look at Patrick Sertan and Caleb Farley, both guys really, really intriguing, it's just a matter of what you want, what you're looking for, what you're willing to say, okay, this can get better here, we really love his ability to do XYZ, we can coach him up here in this area and that area uh, to get him to where we need him to be, but both players really, really fun. I don't know if I, I don't know if I, we can honestly answer who's a better fit because you know as we talked about in the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast this week, we might have an idea. Oh yeah, Jonathan Gannon, he comes from Indianapolis, but you know as you mentioned, he previously worked under Mike Zimmer. He worked under Jerry Gray in Tennessee. He's going to be pulling all of the from all of those sources to kind of put together the defense and his view and his vision for the very first time. He's never been a coordinator, so we're going to get a good sense early on of this is how they're going to want to try and play. Um, you know, you would guess it's going to be a lot of zone coverage, but you, honestly, you don't know. We don't know how that's going to look. So I think you look at Sertan, you look at Farley, both guys, blue chip talents, and uh, I think their, their future NFL teams are going to be getting good players regardless. So Wilt, Jason, great questions from you guys. Really appreciate you guys uh, reaching out. Thanks so much to everybody for your continued support here of this show. We'll be back early next week. Myself, Dane Brugler, Ben Fennel. We'll be breaking it all down early next week right here on the Journey to the Draft podcast, driven by AAA. In just over three years, Eagles Autism Foundation has raised millions of dollars for autism research and care. But this is about so much more than just fundraising. This is about making a transformational difference in the lives of those affected by autism. This is about bringing our community together. With inclusive, sensory-friendly events and accessible resources, we meet families where they need us most and where we can serve them best. Together, we're united in our mission to improve the lives of the autism community and to turn awareness into action. It's what we focus on every day in every way.